And there's just so little connection between how creative a firm is and and how successful they are as a business. If anything, there might even be an inverse relationship there. Hi, it's Joel, and you're listening to episode number 43 of the Rev Thinking Podcast, the conversation between creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. On today's episode, I'm speaking with David C. Baker, and our topic is the business of expertise and more. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for next generation creative entrepreneurs. Now, here is your host, Joel Pilger. Hello, it's Joel. This is episode 43 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. I appreciate you for being here. All you fabulous creative entrepreneurs working in motion, animation, sound design, music, production, and more. It's good to have you with us. You know, I missed out last week. We did episode 42 with Jason Fletcher. That was the episode called The Story Your Finances Are Telling. And that one was a good episode you need to check out. But I missed the opportunity to celebrate the number 42, which of course, many of you know, is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Now, I won't go into that whole story. That's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. But I do need to reference some news and events before I get into the episode today with David C. Baker. This is a great episode because I've been a fan of David's for over 10 years. I think I've been following him and been to his conferences. He's a thought leader that is well known in the advertising and marketing agency space. But first, some news and events, news and events, news and events. There's so much coming that I'm literally not going to be able to get through all of it or else we'd be spending 10 minutes with all the stuff that's coming down in RevThink land. But I will mention the few things that are most important for you to be aware of. First up is the Motion Conference. Now, this is actually the Motion Finale. The conference in Santa Fe is coming to an end. I know. Someone play that, that sad violin right here. But June 5th through the 8th in Santa Fe, Tim Thompson, RevThink's very own chief revolution thinker, he's delivering the keynote. And he's going to be introducing the talks by Kyle Cooper, Aaron Sarofsky, Garson Yu, and many more creative leaders in the motion industry. So Tim is going to be there and be a part of the whole last finale there of motion. So be sure to check it out and make the trip down to Santa Fe. I won't be there this year. And I'm sad because I've spoken there many times and I'm going to miss the finale, but you can make it. All right. What am I doing? I am moderating a session at Promax BDA. Now, the Promax BDA conference is coming up in New York City in June 11 through 14. In New York City, I'll be leading a session on Wednesday. And this session is called How Nick and ESPN Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste. That's going to be fun. On my panel, I'm going to have people from Nickelodeon, ESPN, Nathan Love, and of course, one of my favorites, Marcel at State Design. So on this panel, we're going to talk about what it really takes to produce these big 360 campaigns and more importantly, what goes wrong and what to do about it. Also at Promax, RevThink is going to be proudly supporting Pop-Up F5. So this is an F5 conference 
that is all about creative and design and the state of the art that's happening in the creative world of motion. And the conference, it's like a conference within a conference. And the pop-up F5 is being put on by Carlos Elasmar and the team from Motionographer. We're proudly sponsoring the speaker dinner. So the speakers that are coming in from all around the world, uh, RevThink is going to take good care of them the night before. So they show up well-fed and well-hydrated for the conference on Tuesday morning pop-up F5. It's going to be really, really good for us to be there. And Tim is going to address the pop-up F5 uh, gathering, and I may join him as well there for a moment on the main stage. Something else at Promax BDA that we're doing is RevThink is sponsoring the Agency Happy Hour. So this is a happy hour for the community of agency owners, so people that run or our partners in the motion design studios, the production companies, the agencies in the ProMax world. And we're sponsoring that along with Greenspoon Martyr, the entertainment law firm from New York City. And we're going to be making several big announcements at the happy hour at ProMax week. Again, I won't go through all of it right now. I can't even tell you all those details, but they're coming. So stay tuned to the podcast or join us in our seven ingredients Facebook group where you'll hear things first. And of course, come to Promax and you will be a part of it all. Okay, let me just mention uh, also on an upcoming episode, more reasons to stay tuned to the Rev Thinking podcast in an upcoming episode soon. I'm going to have Blair Enns of Win Without Pitching talking about his new book, Pricing Creativity, which if you haven't bought, you're behind because it's awesome. Do you ever have questions for me or Tim or our guests on the podcast? We actually here at RevThink, we love questions. It's all about asking better questions. It's not necessarily always about the answers. If you want to send us questions, please, you can email us at info at RevThink.com. But even better, if you're an owner or a partner at a creative firm, go to the 7 Ingredients group on Facebook and request access because there's a lot of conversations going on there between about almost 400 owners around the world. Okay, enough of that. Now to today's episode with David C. Baker. Now, David is, like I said, someone that I've been following for the better part of 10 years. I've been to his seminars. I've read his books. He really helped me develop a mindset for what it takes to run a great entrepreneurial creative business. Now, I love what David says here. He says, entrepreneurial expert firms don't often fail because their work isn't good enough. It nearly always is. No, they struggle because of the quality of their business decisions, often in the key areas of positioning and structuring roles and performance benchmarking and succession. So this is near and dear to my heart. As I learned what he taught many years ago, I synthesized it with a lot of other things I learned on how to run a great creative business. Now, he also recently authored a book called The Business of Expertise, which contains many of his ideas and thoughts collapsed down into bite-sized nuggets. So you'll be, you'll be, should be sure to check out his book. It's really great. All right, now to the conversation. I hope you enjoy my chat with David C. Baker. So, David, it's really great to have you on the Rev Thinking podcast. I'm so glad you accepted my invitation to join me for this episode today. Sure. I didn't have to think hard about it. I've um, heard of the work you're doing. And so it was very easy just to say yes. I really appreciate the uh, invitation. I was honored to get it. Glad to be here. Well, I was, I was reading your book 
right? The business of expertise. And something inspired me to say, you know, I need to reconnect with David. And I reached out to you and you were gracious enough to say, hey, let me send you a few copies and I'd love to be on your podcast. So I was really flattered. Yeah, it's always nice to talk with other folks who are addressing the same market in the same ways. I love the fact that I'm not the only person doing this sort of work. There are, you know, more than a dozen really good, good avenues. And so between us, you know, we put all this knowledge together and it helps the industry as a whole. Besides, we all have very different styles. So there's no way to even come close to pretending that my style is a good fit for everybody. When I, when I first got into this field many, many years ago, there were about four, three or four people who were doing advice giving seriously. Okay. The way I view what I do is I help entrepreneurial creatives make better business decisions. I, because that's what they need help with. They don't, they don't need help with the creative and, and there's just so little connection between how creative a firm is and and how successful they are as a business. If anything, there might even be an inverse relationship there where <laughs> someone's amazingly creative, but they let that carry them, right? They don't, they make stupid business decisions or they don't bother to manage people. And some of that disgusts me, honestly. I, I really admire the folks who just do the hard work and maybe they're not on everybody's radar. They're not the hot firm of this year. And that always switches every six months, but they're really doing good work. Well, I, you played a really interesting role in my career because I ran Impossible Pictures, which was a creative studio, not in the advertising you know, or marketing agency space, right? But in right. broadcast and motion design and that sort of thing. But I immediately, I think, latched onto you when a friend of mine, Jim Knutson, introduced me to your body of work. And this was probably eight or nine years ago. And I, I immediately right. found, you know, I was always, I think, a good creative, but frankly, not great. And I saw my mm. unique ability as I'm going to run a great creative business. So in you, I found a mentor that was teaching a lot and giving a lot away, even before I think people realized that's how you really help the world and you grow as a consultant was to give away your, your knowledge and your help. So I think you and I briefly met at one of your business development uh, seminars that you did in Nashville. And I met you and I met Blair Ends and right. uh, so forth. But right. just that information that you were providing of how do you run a business that's, you know, that's primary space is creativity. Um, for me, it's just always been really, really helpful. So now that I'm sort of in a similar space with you advising companies, um, we're sort of two birds of a feather. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I'm really glad you're doing this and I, I wish you all the luck in the world, really, because I think the world is big enough to, to just soak up everything that you're doing. And so it's, it's fantastic. I'm, I congratulate you for focusing on that because the world doesn't really need, now this is a really strange thing to say, really, and I, I don't mean it offensively at all, but the world doesn't necessarily need another impossible pictures. And I'm yeah. just using that. Uh, just because there are tens of thousands of firms like that, but the world does need another firm doing what you're doing now. And so, and that's an interesting twist on, on positioning, right? <laughs> yeah. Because agencies are always imagining how unique they are. And, and 
I, I might be getting a little bit jaded there because I just sort of roll my eyes when I read the answers that people read off to me about how their agency is so unique. And it's kind of funny because they're unique. Their agency is unique, just like everyone else's. It's sort of like these motorcycle riders that are rebels, just like uh, millions of other people are rebels and they're all rebels together, but nobody's really a rebel. It's they're they're dentists during the week and then they're riding putting applique tattoos on on the weekend and now they're rebels. It's it's interesting how people really confuse all of these positioning decisions. That was the main motivation for starting to write more publicly. So it's been it's been a good journey. But I'm I'm taking us off track here. I should let oh, you no, that's direct this. Believe just... me, we're going to get into some really good positioning questions um, in, in a bit. But I was going to first mention that you've had a great collaboration with Belair Ends of Win Without Pitching uh, fame. And Blair was gracious enough to also agree to come on the podcast. So that'll hopefully be happening in a few weeks. But it's funny because between you and Blair, I, like, I honestly don't know who I quote more. So if your ears are burning on a regular basis, it's me. It's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The problem with working with Blair so closely is that I don't even know which ideas are mine anymore. And I will say things thinking that they're my ideas and and he'll remind me, it's like, you know, I told you that years ago. And, and it's, it's certainly true. I, when I was writing this most recent book, I just said in the beginning, like, I don't even know how to apologize to this because his, his thinking has influenced me significantly. We definitely don't agree on everything for sure, but his thinking has had a huge influence on me. And there were the Stuart Sanders of the world back there, back then, who were applying a very typical outbound sales, personality-driven, relationship-driven sales model. And Blair brought a lot more science to the table. So it was very easy for us to build a friendship and a collaboration over time. And then we started this podcast. That was his idea. Start this podcast about a year ago, I think. And it's been a lot of fun. Well, I can do. tell you guys have a tremendous collaboration going. And I know the feeling because my business partner, Tim uh, Thompson at RevThink, he and I also have <laughs> so many ideas that I'm not really sure who came up with what or how it came together, but there's this body of knowledge right. that we're building and it's really fun to give it away. And of course we like to give each other a hard time. Um, and Blair in fact told me to tell you, Hey, I'm really glad I'm coming on the podcast after David because David likes to open for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's pretty perfect. good. Yeah. But you know, I think what I've always appreciated about the way that you express yourself in your thought leadership and what Blair does as well, that there is sort of a radical honesty with, mm. you know, it's not, let's not just pretend because I think there's maybe something about the creative mind uh, that is sometimes in combat with the business mind that we lie to ourselves right. uh, because we have these myths, we have these dreams, we have these aspirations of, well, if we just produce great work, it's all going to be great. It's all going to be, Amazing. Do you do you share that sentiment? Yes, for sure. I think more recently people have are waking up to the fact that maybe that's not as true as it used to be. But for many, many years, that was absolutely true. If we and you could even see it in how they expressed their own need for a not so much a positioning. They didn't even understand positioning for themselves back then, but how they understood their need for a lead generation plan. They would scoff when you would talk about it. And you could tell that secretly they were underneath their breath thinking, uh, listen, 
a lead generation plan is for people who, whose work is it good enough. If, if your work okay. is good enough, it speaks for itself. That's funny. And they would always throw themselves into that camp, of course. And to those people, especially if they were busy, it was, it was always a challenge to get them to believe that they needed to think carefully about their own brand and their own lead generation efforts, because even if they were busy, it could always be more lucrative work. And so I got, I tried to get them to think about how that it's not just positioning lead generation for you as the agency principal is not about getting work because if you aren't generally busy, you're probably just incompetent. No, it's, it's about the kind of work you get. It's the kind of work that allows you to charge this massive price premium, the kind of work that really changes the world and so on, to be a little bit more in control of your destiny. So, yes, I do think it's prevalent out there. Now, some people don't really believe that doing great work is enough. They know, they tell themselves the truth that, no, that's not enough. The reason they don't market themselves is because they're just not disciplined enough. I, I do these micro surveys every week to my entire um, opt-in email list. And so I just, I think of like, oh, what's a real simple question that I could ask everybody? And then I'll ask that question and then I'll report on the results from last week's survey. So the one I sent out yesterday was really interesting. It was a three-part question and it said, and it went out to, I don't know, tens of thousands of agency principals. I looked just now and more than 100 people have already answered it. And I said, all right, rate your biggest struggle between these three things, your own positioning. So in other words, you're, you understand lead gen and you're a pretty good salesperson, but your positioning sucks. Or <laughs> is your biggest problem lead gen? So you've got a great positioning. And if you get enough opportunities, you're going to close them. Or is your positioning really sales? So your positioning is fine. Your lead generation is fine. But when you get in front of people, you can't close the deal. Right. So yeah. that, that was a question. And the overwhelming response from principals, as of today anyway, the 100 that have answered the survey, is that our biggest problem is lead generation. So we don't have a problem with positioning, which is not true, by the way. <laughs> and... We are great at sales, which is not true, by the way. Right. So what they're saying is all we need are more opportunities without understanding that unless you have a great positioning, you're not going to get more opportunities. Like when you decide what your, you know, what's Joel's lead generation plan? Well, you know exactly what your positioning is. You know how to re where to reach your prospects. You know what to say to them when you reach them and so on. Most agencies do not have any of those, those things wrapped up. They just think, I need more opportunity. I'm a really good salesperson. And my positioning is good enough. So that just illustrates, I think, what we're talking about here. In a, it's a large misunderstanding of the real problem. Well, here's something I'm observing. And I'm curious if you see this because, you know, in my space where we're specific to, say, motion design companies or production companies. Right. And I know you've worked with some of those people in that space over the years. Right. You, have yeah. some, you have some true you know, expertise as well there. I find a lot of times the person who has difficulty closing the sale or closing the sale that he wants or she wants, mm -hmm. meaning, oh, yeah, we landed the job, but it's, you know, half the budget that we would normally have commanded. They, they think they have a sales problem. But if you actually diagnose what's really going on, 
It's the things you're talking about where, wait a minute, the way that you're positioned, the way that you started that conversation way back in the lead gen mm-hmm. stage was wrong. And it sets you up for a failure that I would call a symptom of poor positioning rather than well, we just don't know how to close. Right. Yeah. Do you find that as well? Yes, I do. And I think the industry you serve has some things about it that are, that are very, very unique. They're shared by the entire, uh, I guess, entertainment space, as well as the pure design space, where I would, I'm not sure if this is fair, or if I'm using the words exactly right. But we need to draw a distinction between talent and expertise. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of the folks in the design space, the, the motion design space that you serve, as well as the production world, they have enormous talent. They have talent just dripping out of every part of their body, but they don't necessarily have an expertise that they can sell without their hands. So if you might design for, let's say, a marketing firm or an ad agency or something like that, they might be positioned either vertically or horizontally. And then they find a a list of people that could serve as good prospects for them. And then they begin writing expertise, white papers, or they do a podcast or, you know, the kind of stuff that I do selling my thinking. Okay. How do you do that as a motion design firm? (laughs) Tricky. Or as a production firm? Right. Because it's really more about talent than it is about thinking. And that, that is going to sound quite offensive to your audience. And I don't know how to say it. I don't mean to be offensive, but I'm just trying to illustrate that Some of the principles that we would like to be true for other professional service branches are more of a challenge in the motion design and the production world. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Well, I I think you're right. I have this model that I call the three P's of positioning, and that is it's this sort of amalgamation of your purpose, your power and your personality Mm -hmm. and where that it's almost like a Venn diagram, right, where those things intersect around your name and and so forth. And it is kind of peculiar to our, to our space where power is very much about that expertise. It's a little different twist because you don't go in as a motion design studio and say, because I tried this, (laughs) you can't go in and say, Hey, we get great ratings. So therefore Mm -hmm. you should hire us. Right. Because the people in this industry are really motivated by preservation or promotion, as much as they might say, yes, we want eyeballs. At the end of the day, they really don't. So this Mm -hmm. is another lie we tell ourselves. But also that personality element, often a firm is selling, like you just mentioned, they're putting forth this talent. You're going to work with this director Mm -hmm. or this superstar motion designer or whatever. It's almost a personality celebrity factor, um, which I don't find as quite as prevalent in an ad agency or marketing agency type of a sell. So it is a little bit peculiar. And of course, you know, the firms in our space are generally smaller. They might, you know, a healthy firm might be two to 6 million, you know, a big company is 10 or 20 million. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you a a question. You can pretend for a Mm -hmm. second that let's say I was, I'm a client of yours. And because there were a couple of things in your book that I was like, these are such great analogies or nuggets. And I thought it'd be fun for you to give me advice. For one, I can already hear people listening to us right now that maybe run a studio or a production company and they're like, okay, what's the big fuss 
about positioning. Mm-hmm. Like we're really doing well. We're doing fine. What's the big deal? And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of your analogy about the person standing inside the bottle straining to read the label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. How do you, how does the owner get outside of his own, get out of his own way mm-hmm. to see the outside of the, the jar? Yeah. And I'll tell you, asking your, your clients what it looks like is not a good solution there. They hire you for their own reasons and some of them aren't the right reasons. So the last thing you want to do is ask your clients about positioning. Right. One thing you can do. So a quick, uh, almost a shortcut and a free one is actually to ask uh, your peers what they hear or think about your firm's positioning. Another would be to ask your uh, any new employee that joins you especially one that has some pretty good experience who and also some boldness and so on it's not that these principles this fictitious principle isn't good at answering that question they're really good at answering that question for their clients or for other firms they just can't answer it for themselves and so you know the obvious answer is well hire you or hire me to do that but if people but but an answer that's not so self-serving is really to ask other principals what they think of it or just to be so totally honest with yourself because most of the time when i answer that question for agencies i'm seldom bringing new information to the table it's already there they just don't know how to sort through the options and make the courageous choice But if you have one of those moments where you've had two or three beers, two on an empty stomach or three with food, or you're just really tired and you just don't care about anything at the moment, you can have one of those honest discussions with yourself about your own positioning and probably answer it. But the the choices or the answers are not surprising usually. They're just, they just require more courage, not more information. Well, here's one little, little trick I've recommended a few times. I'm curious if you've tried tried this approach with any of your clients, as much as you would love to, if you're an agency, ask your clients, you know, what, what is our positioning or what should it be? You can't ask that question because that's almost like if I asked you, David, what's my purpose in life? You can't, only I can answer Mm -hmm. that. Right. But I have noticed that there's this really interesting moment in the sales conversation when you're qualifying someone and you're saying, Hey, you know, what's the deadline for this project? What's the budget? All these kinds of things that you're going through that there is a a little rare special moment when you can ask very comfortably and Hey, why do you think we're the perfect fit for this project? And Mm -hmm. what I've found is if you listen carefully, the client will tell you what they think your positioning is in that, in that statement that follows. It's kind Mm of hidden in there like, Oh, well, you're a, you win a lot of awards or my friend said that you guys have the best talent, whatever. Like that's when you're going to find out what someone really thinks of you. Cause you just t- sort of turn the tables on them and said, why are you even calling me? Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be a good way to surface the real reason people either stay with you or maybe work with you initially. The problem is you can't take statements like that and turn them into a lead generation plan. Because nobody believes yeah. that. Because nobody's out there saying, 
you know, we used to say we're easy to work with, but now we just know that isn't true. So we're just not going to say that anymore because it's not yeah. true. You know, nobody has those honest revelations about themselves. And so it just doesn't come across as believable. Plus, they're one person who's really easy to work with. Another client will hate that person, but it's a little bit about style. And again, it, it has a lot to do with how much you're selling your thinking and how much you're selling your doing. Because like in a production environment, there are so many opportunities to piss off a client that, that your style needs to be very acceptable to them. Whereas having a more consultative, selling the thinking, research-based stuff doesn't have those same those same right. requirements. So that's, again, we get back to how I think your world, world you serves a little bit. Well, I think what I'm hearing you say too is that when, what, when clients do tell you, here's why we think you're a great fit, they're giving you clues maybe, right, to what that deeper, more brave positioning is. Um, at least they're giving you some raw material to say, oh, that's why they want to work with us. Okay, well, let's dig deeper and see what lies beneath that. At least, at least, it, maybe it tells you where to go dig for the bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I want to hear clients say when they're asked that question by the agency is that you understand our world like no other outsider does. Like not as well as we do, but you're bringing a unique perspective because you've worked with so many clients like ours. I wanted to say that. I also want them to say, you are fiercely objective and we so appreciate your honesty and how you also couch that honesty in human terms. Um, and then I want them to talk, not first, but later after those two things, I want them to talk about how well the relationship and the budget and the deadlines are managed but i don't want that to be the first thing they're talking about because they're they're not going to be willing to pay a price premium for those later things that they will. yeah well one, one of my client clients that's a um production company on the east coast one of their i would call it anthems maybe not so much a positioning statement sort of speaks to that and that is they they said they found out their clients come to them because they are quote skillfully reckless Mm -hmm. I thought that's kind yeah. of fun because you obviously can't be internal at a corporation and be reckless ever, but you can hire the guys that are right. out of house that are reckless in a mm -hmm. skillful way, because that's a great way of expressing. We bring something new to the table. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they can defend their approach or at least explain why they're doing it, even if they don't have uh, a a concrete uh, certainty that there's a right path, they can at least defend why they're, they're heading in this direction somewhat recklessly. Yeah, it's interesting. I think of it as, you know, in, in those early sales conversations, it's all about stimulating curiosity because if the conversation is moving forward, you're winning. If the conversation stops because you, you gave them the answer and they're done, then they kind of put you in a box, put you on the shelf and the conversation stops. You know, what's interesting, though, is that I don't think anybody else in the expert space ever thinks about asking their clients when they come to them. I don't think a lawyer has ever, has ever occurred to a lawyer, <laughs> maybe an architect, which has a fair bit of design, which should be sort of a warning flag to us, or um, a, a medical professional. Like, duh, what do you think I did? Like, you're a, you're a brain surgeon. Why do you think I came to you? Right. And yeah, it's, sure. it's not a question that anybody else would ask except for somebody in the creative space. It's just a, it's a strange world we live in. Okay. So here I've got another kind of a crazy zinger question for you, because mm -hmm. in, in our corner of the industry, there's a tremendous advantage and power for 
studios or production companies that make this transition to being an agency. And I might even put air quotes around that because out of deference to you and the agencies that you work with. But for someone who says, hey, you know, my studio, my production company is so great at developing creative. We should be more like an agency. That way we can have more control and charge a lot more. I'm curious, having worked with some of the firms in my space, does that make you bristle or do you hear that and say, yes, go for it? Uh, I wouldn't say go for it in most cases. I guess it depends a little bit on, about, uh, on what we mean by agency, but yeah, of it's a little bit like what happened a decade and a half ago when printers decided they were going to add design departments. And their purpose was really to move upstream with the clients and guarantee that they were going to get the printing work. Yes. Well, you're and, revealing a lot of what I'm really asking because so yeah. many firms are really execution experts. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, I sold the client that we do strategy. So we better go find a killer freelance strategist. Right. And I always tell them that's not strategy. <laughs> that's not part of your DNA. Right. That you're really just trying to get, like you said, upstream and get an engagement sort of earlier in the process. So maybe you get more money or you have more influence. Um, and, I, and I get that. But I don't think they're using the word agency or strategy in its full proper meaning. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. And they would feel somewhat offended if somebody intimated that it would be pretty easy to get into their field either. They just need to buy, you know, the modern equivalent of a flame or something. And, right. then, and then all of a sudden they're a broadcast designer. So, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. It's another example of us uh, because there's no certification in this space the barrier to entry is non-existent. And so we're always basically following the money rather than following the expertise. And it, it gets us in trouble frequently. Yeah, sure. Well, I, lo I love you making that point about following the money because I don't fault anyone for saying, hey, let's go where the dollars are. Um, that's certainly where opportunity exists. But you have to do it in a way that is really genuine and authentic to your expertise and not just a money grab. Right, exactly. So you said something earlier that I kind of thought would be cool to come back to because we were sort of talking about the creative entrepreneur. And sometimes I feel like that's even maybe an oxymoron, not, again, not to be disrespectful to anyone in the audience. But I'm really curious to hear because I know you've worked with so many people that fit that description down through the years. And I've, I've started studying and trying to even find whether it's anecdotal or real uh, studies that have been done on what are the strengths of the creative mind? What are the strengths of the entrepreneurial mind? And when those two come together in one person, what are the conflicts that arise? And I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm curious if you've encountered that where as creatives, we tend to believe certain things that may be myths or lies. As entrepreneurs, maybe the same thing is true. But when the two come together, I find that it's a really uniquely challenging journey for someone to be both of those at one time throughout their career. Yeah. So we can define one of those so much easier than the other. What it means to be an entrepreneur, mm. there's so many sub answers to it. But primarily in the context of what you and I are talking about today, I think an entrepreneur is somebody who 
who makes a fair assessment of risk and then is not afraid of taking risk. That, that's how I would define an entrepreneur in this context. Yeah. But a creative it cannot be defined that simply because people's approach to creativity is completely different depending on their personality. So there might be somebody who takes an entirely iterative approach to creativity. There is another one who might take a process approach. There's another who takes a research approach or a blue sky approach or a conceptual approach. And all of those are equally valid. In fact, that's one of the strengths of a firm is having people at the firm who all approach creativity differently. And so the 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 combined result of their work is so marvelous but i don't think people's approach to successful entrepreneurship is all that different it all really revolves around my earlier definition so there are some things though about being creative and entrepreneurial that really do get people in trouble the email that i sent out yesterday that i referred to just a few minutes ago talked about how so many entrepreneurial creatives are not really a fit for the modern world because, and evolution hasn't really caught up with us here because they are so easily distracted. Their, their general, their innate abilities and, and their, uh, their ability to see so many different opportunities drags them off mission so quickly. And that's not the sort of leader that a larger entrepreneurial enterprise really needs that needs somebody with a steadier hand who sees these opportunities and says no to most of them but an entrepreneurial creative thrives on saying yes to so many things and after saying yes to most everything for 20 years they get to the end of that journey and they look around and they don't see much around them that they built except for lots of really interesting things not much money not much impact on the world. And so I think the most successful entrepreneurial creatives understand their innate tendencies and tame them well, partly through having mentors or doing a lot of reading or having input from the team internally. But, and I don't know if that answers your question specifically, but I think I'd want to think, I'd want to consider those two issues somewhat separately. Well, it's, Actually, in a way, you're getting my attention so much because I think you just described my former life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for 20 years, I was always infatuated with the new, the next thing. Let's try this. Let's go there. And, you know, very entrepreneurial. But I would wear out my team quite frequently. And I think when you have 20 to 30 people looking to you to have your hand firmly on this, you know, on the tiller of this ship and, you know, where are we going? You can't really have that impetuousness and flightiness and willingness to risk it and go for it all. It doesn't necessarily serve you as well as you move through a career as it did in the earlier seasons, I think. So I feel very much like that is, that was my experience. Right. Yeah. And I think that this EOS traction system that a lot of firms are using, I think it's too complicated and, and is somewhat problematic, but a lot of agencies have found it to be a very useful addition to how they manage the firm. One of the benefits, I think, is that it recognizes that there's going to be one dreamer 
you know, the person that's coming up with all the big ideas, but that person needs to be balanced by somebody else on staff who is charged with filtering some of those ideas, prioritizing them, parking the ones that sound good, but we don't have the time for, and, and making sure that we aren't drawn off mission constantly. Yeah, so I was, I was, I think, fortunate uh, along my journey to have some really great mentors. And I would even include you among them. I know you and I both are fans of Dan Sullivan from yes. Coach. And, you know, that concept of unique ability and really being great at just a few things and delegating, not abdicating, <laughs> but delegating those things where you're not great was really helpful for me because I think as my firm grew, as much as I was driven to those those whims and impetuous desires that, that I described earlier, my business partner took on a, a role that was very balancing. And I brought on, you know, an operations person who was very much balancing, like, okay, you're going to make sure that we've, we have contracts and that we've negotiated every deal and we have an HR system and all that stuff could not have been more horrifying and boring to me. So that was a really nice way to understand that, you can actually balance these things as you go through your, your career and not, not snuff out the, the light and the magic, but at least temper it. Yes, for sure. Yeah, that's the, exactly the kind of balance I was thinking of. That's great. Well, so what's, um, what's the experience been like of uh, writing the book? I'm just curious to hear because I've, I've really enjoyed reading the business of expertise. And I have, in fact, I was going to tell you, I need to send you a bill for several highlighters because I think I yeah. burned through about three or four of them getting, getting through the book. Um, what was it that, that drove you to, to, to write it? And are you finding that it has this universality of, I think, appeal and knowledge for all entrepreneurs, whether they're creative pe people or not? Yes, I've been. Well, the book was written so that it, it wasn't uh, a limited audience by creative entrepreneurs because more and more my speaking life is taking me outside of this industry. My consulting life is still firmly planted here, but mm -hmm. my speaking life is, is, is other places as well. So that was part of the thinking behind uh, using examples that are not all just from the creative field. The, the printed book, which I love the way it feels and looks and so on, but it's really only available in a few markets around the world. But when the audiobook and the ebook came out, which they weren't released all at the same time, it's really, really taken off. It was also uh, featured, there's a whole article written about it in the New York Times two weeks ago. And that has just sent sales through the roof all over the world. And that was an unexpected uh, blessing. So oh, that was. That was fantastic. Yeah, it's not it's not a New York Times bestseller. I don't mean that. It's not listed in there. It was just a, a whole article uh, about the book written by a columnist. So that that was really good. I it, it's my fifth book, but it's the first one I've written that was really punchy and to the point, and not so much a reference manual, but a very passionate defense of expertise. I didn't even really know where it was going, and. There are certain points in the book where I don't even know why those sections are in there, but I don't I don't make any apology apology for it at all. I 
I, I just wanted, I had a message and I wanted to send it to the world. Like quit doing a half-assed job at what you do. Start taking your own expertise seriously. Here's what it means if you want to be positioned appropriately. Here's what it means to develop expertise. Here's how to act like one. Here's how not to act like one. Here's how to live a balanced life as an expert. So it's really the beginning of a multi-part series, I think. Okay. And the, I don't have the next ones planned out, but the way I, you know, had the book designed and titled and so on, I'm imagining that the next book in the series will be the blank of expertise rather than the business will be the something else of expertise. And it's been fantastic. I mean, sales of this book have um, way exceeded any other book that I've written. So I'm, I'm assuming that Part of that is because it has a slightly broader audience to it. Well, it's very cool that it was mentioned in the New York Times. I have to, I'll have to dig that up. Um, yeah. To mention, I think the, the story you told from your dad, who was not a consultant, about going to the bathroom in a dark suit. Yeah, right. Oh, my gosh. That one was yeah. so funny. I was, my, my daughter was getting ready for school, and I had to share that with her and my wife, and we just had a good laugh sitting there yeah. the, as we got ready for school that morning because... It, it, again, it's one of those, um, I'll, we don't have to go through the whole story, but I think it's just a good example of how much maybe entrepreneurs, and I would especially say creative entrepreneurs, can easily fall prey to telling ourselves lies or believing myths and saying, right. well, you know, what does, it, what does it hurt? And of course, your story is, well, that's like going to the bathroom in a, in a dark suit. Nobody sees it and you feel real warm. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He used to say that all the time. So it kind of found its way into the book. Yeah. He, he had all kinds of those sorts of statements. I'm saving some for the future books. Oh, good. <laughs> so I have more to look forward to yeah. is what you're telling yeah. me. Right. Right. Okay. So David, for people that want to follow you, do you recommend that they check out your website and follow your blog, subscribe? What's, what's the best way for the people to keep up with all of your thinking and what you're up to? Yes, I would say if somebody's just interested in the book and not any of the other things I do, then if they just go to expertise.is, expertise.is, then they can sign up to be notified about anything that comes out about the book. But if they'd like to follow the other things I do, like the speaking and the seminars and consulting and so on, they can go to davidcbaker.com and join the tens and tens of thousands of firms that get my weekly emails. I love writing those. It's all free. And I'll just casually mention something I'm doing that may be coming up in the future, but generally each week has an, uh, an article that's useful to people. And it's also posted on the website as well, but the email is the best way to uh, stay notified of those things. Well, this might sound like uh, I'm making you out to be a sponsor or something, but no, quite literally when your email lands in my inbox, I always flag it because I know I'm going to come back to it and read it. Because most of the time, there's something that pushes me into a direction, gives me a new thought. And of course, I love the, you call them micro surveys. I love that you're, you're doing that because there's a certain immediacy to what's, what are people in this space thinking? How are they feeling? What's everyone's collective thought about some of these pressing issues? Yeah. I think that's very cool. I'm, I'm really glad you're doing that. Oh, good. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun doing it. As long as I can keep thinking of good topics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's never, like there's no shortage of need out there, right? So it's like, if we just stay alert and pay, keep paying attention, we're going to continue to stay in touch with the needs and hopefully innovate solutions to, to meet them and 
so forth. Um, yeah. I should also mention your two Bob's podcast that you do with Blair. Is that, is that also growing as well? Cause I'm, I've become quite the fan of it. Yes. It's uh, so the numeral two bobs.com and it's a play on the office space. Those two consulting bobs in there, he and I reach called that at many times in our consulting careers. So we just called it two bobs. So yes, it comes out every second Wednesday morning and uh, the, the listenership has grown exponentially. It's been fantastic. We, we kind of did it on a lark, but decided we would give it a try. And it's been great. We were really having fun doing it. Yeah. What do you know? It's, it's stuck, right? So now it's gaining traction. Right. Um, so I guess, do you have any upcoming conferences or appearances that you want to mention? Or you're sure. I'm seeing uh, they want to get your wisdom in, in the flesh. Sure. For any of your listeners in the in the European market, we're doing Blair and I are doing an event in London, June 25th and 26th. And then we're doing the same one. This is around new business, doing the same one in Australia, October 23 to 24. And I'm doing four events in Nashville, two in September, one on succession and partnership and another another two in November, one on account slash project management and then performance benchmarking. So love to see any, any of your listeners there. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I'm hoping one of these days that you and I will actually intersect on the same stage. I think that would be a real, Oh yeah. That'd be, be a, fantastic. That'd be a blast. Yeah, right. And I really appreciate your invitation today. It's been fun chatting with you and I appreciate you letting me um, be a guest on your podcast. Oh, you got it. I, I just want to say thanks on behalf of, I think the industry, honestly, that for such a long time, you've been in this, You've been a very generous soul, just giving away the, the thought leadership and the advice and the feedback, the data on the industry, that kind of thing. It's been enormously helpful. And hey, it even helped my career. So I'm very grateful. Oh, well, thank you, Joel. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Yes. Take care, Joel. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more free resources, updates on upcoming events, or to learn how RevThink consultants advise creative entrepreneurs, please visit RevThink.com.